0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Grateful that you are with us on this Friday afternoon slash evening here in the nation's capital, where we are expecting to work well into the weekend with the members of the United States Senate who will be debating the reconciliation package uh, at least into Saturday. We'll, of course, be tracking all that for you. We'll discuss that today on the program. Later, also in the program, what does the pro-life community have to learn from the defeat of a pro-life amendment in Kansas? We'll talk about that today. In addition, The American Academy of Pediatrics published a study which says the dramatic increase in transgender identities in young people is not due to a social contagion. Is the study any good? Is the fact that they did the study proof that they're worried that transgenderism may actually be a social contagion? We'll talk about that. And also, what does monkeypox have to do with worldview? More than you think, actually. And we'll talk about that in the worldview segment that I'll have with David Clausen at the end of the show today. But first, the headlines. The Senate reconciliation bill moved one step closer to passing last night when Democrat Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona indicated that she's on board after bargaining for concessions, one of which will provide a tax break for hedge fund managers. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the bill will be introduced tomorrow and potentially passed tomorrow night. There are, of course, plenty of critics of the bill, including Senator Lindsey Graham, who had this to say.
2: The Democratic Party has one play, tax and spend. You show me a group of Democrats in any room in America and they're thinking about ways to increase your taxes and spend your money, and it is not working.
1: Now, this bill is being referred to as the Inflation Reduction Act and it's ostensibly aimed at reducing inflation. Will it accomplish that goal? Joining us now to help us understand the economic impact of this plan is economist Stephen Moore. He's a senior fellow at FreedomWorks and a co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and I understand he's still about to join us. Oh, Stephen, it looks like we have him. Stephen, welcome back to the program thanks so much for having me sorry
0: we got a big storm going on here so i'm glad we were able to make the
1: connection. We do. <laughs> Those of us in Washington, D.C. can, can hear the noise outside, and, and we trust that the uh, power will remain on today. Um, <laughs> well, the, so. You probably hear the thunder in the background, but uh, I, I can hear you loud and clear. Well, perhaps it's a foreboding sign of what's going to happen this weekend regarding the reconciliation package, which really just took pieces from the Build Back Better plan, it seems, and then grabbed some pieces from the Green New Deal, New Deal combined them, We're calling them the Inflation Reduction Act in this combination. I'm actually a little bit surprised they didn't just call it the World Peace Act to really get the public behind it. But, uh, Stephen Moore, will this actually reduce inflation like the title claims it will?
0: Well, did the Affordable Care Act reduce health care (laughs) costs? Of course it's not going to reduce inflation. And by the way, you don't have to believe me. Only uh, I saw a poll that uh, I think it was only like 15 percent of Americans believe this bill will reduce inflation. Most Americans are right. They have a good uh, kind of innate understanding of uh, economics that if you have a massive tax and spend bill, which this is an atrocious bill. There's nothing good in this bill. If you're a conservative, a free market person, uh, if you want America to be producing our energy, if you don't want the IRS harassing you, this is this is just an absolutely dreadful piece of legislation. Shame on Joe Manchin for selling out a state of their, uh, West Virginia. It's going to hurt our coal industry. It's going to hurt our oil and gas industry. It's going to hurt our manufacturing industry. It hires eighty thousand new IRS agents to harass uh, not just the general public, but they're going to go. They're going to weaponize the IRS just like they've weaponized the. Justice Department and the FBI to go after conservatives and Republicans. So this is a dangerous bill. And right now, it looks like the Democrats are just going to lead the uh, economy right over this cliff with this bill. We'll find out tomorrow when the Senate starts debating.
1: Well, Stephen Moore, you clearly are not a fan of this bill, but who wins if it's passed?
0: Sorry, sorry, say that again? Who wins if the bill is passed? Who benefits? Well, look, the bill is filled with taxes I mean they have a, a, a tax that will em- effectively hit all Americans you know remember their their uh, promise that they would only tax people who made less than four hundred thousand dollars I mean how many times did you say Hear Joe Biden say that, Joe Manchin said that the other day, Pelosi said it the other day. It's a big, fat lie. Even the government's own numbers say that the uh, people making less than $200,000 will pay about $17 billion more taxes under this bill. That's How is that going to help our economy grow when we're in a recession? That's the other thing that makes me so angry. Yeah. And if I sound angry, I am, because this bill is so contrary to America's economic self-interest. Um, you don't raise taxes during a recession. It's that simple. You just don't do that. And that's what this bill does. And, you know, you go back to Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Joe Manchin, they all have said, oh, you never raise taxes during a recession, but that's exactly what they're doing with this bill. And, And, Stephen, tell us a bit more about that. What kind of taxes are going to be raised on the average American family? Well, the biggest tax increase in this bill is the tax on American businesses. And we, we all want, as free market conservatives, to have a robust, vibrant manufacturing sector here so that we don't have supply chain problems, so we're not dependent on China or Mexico or India or, or other countries. I mean, I'm not for free trade. But we have to make sure that we are you know maintaining the necessary manufacturing base that made this country great. And this bill... Hammers are manufacturers, it, and the number one industry that is negatively affected behind, besides manufacturing is our uh, oil and gas industry and coal industry. So I just find this to be anti-American. The biggest beneficiaries of this bill are, number one, the climate change industrial complex, which is now practically a trillion-dollar industry that feeds off taxpayer dollars, and the Chinese. The Chinese are laughing behind our backs. They can't believe we're doing this to our own companies. Does this effectively
1: undo the things that the Trump administration did to accelerate the manufacturing domestically?
0: Unfortunately, yes. And I say that painfully because, as you know, I was a big part of, you know, helping write that tax plan uh, that cut our business tax rates so we could bring back a lot of manufacturing and a lot of capital from around the world and make things here in America. And that was, as you know, part of the whole make America great again agenda and putting America first. This this bill puts America last. And it's it's just so frustrating because we created so many jobs under Trump. We created the best economy we've had, you know, at least since Reagan. And now you're right. Joe Biden is reversing those policies. They don't care that it's going to hurt the lowest income people. You know, we just had a jobs report today, which is a pretty good number. Except that the people are really getting hammered by this inflation of the lowest income people. Inflation is now running at nine percent, and according to the report today, wages are only growing by five percent. You do the math there; you see people are losing money every paycheck. Right. And Stephen, let,
1: let's talk about that because there was a jobs report number. Reported 500,000 new jobs. People look at that and say that's great. It beat many expectations. But here's what Senator John Barrasso had to say uh, about that. Let's play clip one, and then I want to have you tell us if we should be optimistic or not.
0: If you talk to families, they are having a harder and harder time keeping up. Because even if they're working, even if they got a bit of a raise, the raise has not kept up with the cost of inflation. And families in this country, in spite of what the president may have said, are falling further and further behind. And it's harder and harder to just keep up with where they were, certainly when he came became
3: president of the United States.
1: Stephen Moore, that was largely the point you just made. Should we be optimistic because the job numbers look good or pessimistic because of everything else?
0: Well, I mean, it was good jobs numbers, so I'm happy about that. I want Americans working. I don't want people to be unemployed. So it was a a positive number, but the inflation is just killing Americans. And so um, I I feel like this bill that is, you know, we started talking about this, uh, what they call the Inflation Reduction Act. This is going to make inflation much worse because they're raising taxes on American companies. Now, you know, everybody knows when you do that, what are they going to do? They're going to raise their prices, right? I mean, that's what they have to do if the government's going to take more money away from them. And then you've got, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in new spending. They I mean here's just one example. They want to spend three billion, not three million, three billion dollars to uh, retrofit all the uh, U- United Postal Service uh, trucks and uh, delivery trucks. so they're electric vehicles. three billion dollars. Uh, they want to spend forty billion dollars to increase the size of the IRS so they can hire 80,000 new IRS agents. Meanwhile, our army just reported they don't have enough soldiers. They don't have enough recruits, uh, and, and they need forty thousand more uh, recruits. And we have we have a shortage of people at the border. We need to hire at least ten thousand more border agents. But instead, their priority is to hire eighty thousand new IRS agents. This is just su- such a warped sense of priorities about what matters to the American people. Let's make let's put Americans' national security and our border security before we you know. Hire all these new IRS snoops. Well, Stephen Moore, it's
1: possible that the IRS doesn't doesn't do the same diversity, equity, inclusion training, which makes it easier for them to recruit and keep uh, their employees. But I'm just speculating on that. But I I, I want to y- you mentioned the uh, the the manufacturing job, and kind of this apparent tug of war, where the Obama administration had these higher uh, tax rates on manufacturers, the Trump administration got rid of those taxes on manufacturers, now the Biden administration is poised to put them back on. Why are manufacturers, in particular, a place where the left seems to be eager to uh, tax?
0: Because they hate business. They hate business. It's that simple. You know, I did that report a few weeks ago that got so much attention that showed almost nobody in the Biden administration has any business experience. This is an anti-business administration. And as my old boss Dick Armey used to say, you know, if you don't have employers, you're not going to have jobs. And they think everybody's just going to work for the government or for these green energy companies. But I'll tell you, the people really struggling out there are the men and women who run small businesses who don't get any of this federal money that we're passing out like candy. They're having a hard time, you know, getting the customers because it's tough times for America right now. And, I, you know, it's not a tough time in Washington, D.C. People are doing just fine in Washington, D.C. But you go around the country, that's where people are struggling. And so we have not drained the swamp, unfortunately. Uh, Joe Biden has replenished the swamp. I mean, where do you, how much of that money of that $600 billion they want to spend how much of that is ever even going to get out of Washington? <laughs> I mean, probably not much. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's a great point again. This on, on the
1: inflation point because they are calling this the Inflation Reduction Act, but we're spending new money. We've added seven trillion dollars to the debt to the federal debt since two thousand. So that's just two years ago. Seven trillion dollars yeah. of additional debt. I think everybody understands that that has dramatically influenced uh, the what we've experienced with inflation. Now we're poised to spend more. Is there a chance that not only does this not reduce inflation, but it actually adds to it?
0: Oh yeah, Well, absolutely. I wanna say this loud and clear. This is going to make inflation worse. Now, inflation is coming down a little bit. That's a good sign, you know, from its sky high, 9.2%. I think we'll get it maybe down to 7%, but that's still a high rate of inflation. Uh, And the other thing is that's laughable As they're running around saying this is, you know, Joe Biden, if you listen to him talk, he acts like he's some kind of fiscal savior, like he's bringing down the deficit. Look at all I'm doing for deficit reduction. As you just said, this is a guy who's added $3 trillion to our debt. I mean, that's like saying Al Capone, you know, wasn't a criminal. Stephen Moore, we are sadly
1: out of time. Uh, We appreciate your energy and your enthusiasm, but we share your uh, dismay over what it looks like may happen this weekend, but thank you for your time today.
0: Well, we need... Uh, well, we need all hands on deck right now. This is not open, oh, folks. If you can, if you live, especially if you're we know, are uh, out of time. A but contact Center. your legislators. Stephen people. Moore,
1: thank you. We'll be right back right
0: after this.
4: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how his word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org/bible.
6: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Our conversation there with Stephen Moore from FreedomWorks was cut short. Uh, It was an energetic one because of what we are uh, experiencing in the nation's capital this weekend, the debate over the reconciliation bill, and the point that he was making at the end of that segment is that it is not over, and the United States Senate is, of course, deadlocked at 50-50, and Kristen Sinema said she is prepared to support the bill, and given her vote and then the tie-breaking vote that would come from Vice President Kamala Harris. The bill could pass if the entire Democratic caucus holds together. But of course that has not happened yet. And one thing that can always threaten the intentions of Congress or any legislature is the fact that that their constituents can reach out to them and tell them what they want and that can ultimately move the needle. So we do encourage those of you who care about this bill who might be concerned about uh, the spending and the policy choices in that bill. Contact your legislators tonight and tomorrow as they continue to debate. That can make a difference. Now, you've heard about the Inflation Reduction Act, but as you know, it is not the only bill uh, being debated in Congress. In the recent week, weeks in particular, uh, we've had a great deal of concern over the Respect for Marriage Act, as they are calling it uh, in Washington D.C. now, and this, of course, is the bill that would codify the Obergefell decision into federal law. And joining me now uh, to discuss this is Mary Beth Waddell. She's the director of federal affairs for Family and Religious Liberty here at Family Research Council. Mary Beth, good to see you.
5: Good to see you, Joseph. Glad to be with you again.
1: Well. Uh, Give us an update on this. We just talked about, uh, with Stephen Moore, one really concerning piece of legislation. What's the latest on this effort uh, to codify same-sex marriage in federal law?
5: Yeah, this is another very concerning bill uh, with very significant problems in it. And I've had the opportunity to speak with numerous Senate offices on this bill. I think the fact that we're not getting a vote on it this week is Good news on timing. We are getting the message out there about the religious liberty concerns in this bill, how it is targeting faith based organizations, particularly adoption and foster care agencies, that we need now in a post row world, unlike ever before. You know, we need them engaging with these uh, mothers and children and families in need. You know, that message is starting to get out there. And, you know talking about too how we 're talking about you know weaponizing the IRS this bill too could target uh, the tax exempt status of faith based organizations, and that is beginning to penetrate those talking points um, but we're not there yet you know, just a few days ago, uh, you had uh, Senator Baldwin, I believe it was saying you know that she believes she 's got the ten uh, I'm believing that was hopefully an over exaggeration. I do believe she 's got at least five. Uh, But, you know, we're still, uh, their conversations are going to continue through August on this. So we're seeing good movement, but there's still ways to go.
1: Yet more reasons to continue to contact your legislators. Mary Beth Waddell, thank you for that quick update on this critical issue. Now, we were going to get some feedback. Uh, The country continues to react to what happened in Kansas with the defeat of a pro-life constitutional amendment. What does this mean for the pro-life cause moving forward? Joining me now to provide his perspective is Chuck Donovan. He's the president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute and a man who's been at the forefront of this fight for decades. Chuck, welcome to Washington Watch.
3: It's an honor to be with you, Joseph. We
1: we are glad to have you. And and tell us your reaction to Kansas, but very specifically, what do you think we should be learning from this moving forward?
3: Well, Joseph, uh, any loss like this is painful. Uh, We knew going in that it was going to be close. It was a complicated uh, constitutional battle because we were dealing with a Supreme Court decision from Kansas Uh, that took this out of the voters' hands just three years ago. And so there was an attempt to restore it to the voters' or legislators' um, intent. Uh, But that that made it possible for opponents of pro-life to characterize whatever would happen as being the most adverse situation or extreme as possible. And I do think the pro-life movement has to learn from defeats. Uh, We have to learn as much or more as we do from victories, We've been at this a long time, and we're not going to go from 63 million abortions to none overnight. And um, Kansas tells us that we've got got to fight for every vote. I don't think it's a predictor of what will happen this fall, but we'll see.
1: Chuck, to that point, with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, abortion becomes a state issue. This is, of course, an improvement that the, the people even get to have a say. But What do you think, what's the tactic, what's the strategy? How does the pro-life movement advance in a post-trail world in these local debates?
3: Well, I think, you know, we're going to have to keep on our messaging. Uh, We're going to have to be much clearer about what it is we want the law to do. We've had a situation recently where I think we've had some summer soldiers and sunshine patriots Among uh, some erstwhile friends, they're still our friends, Uh, but they're being less willing to say what they want the law to be. Uh, There's a great pull to the status quo. Uh, People don't necessarily know what Roe meant, how sweeping it was. It's our side that's got to remind the American people that it means abortion, legal till birth. Publicly funded, it means Senator Warren attacking and trying to close pregnancy health centers. Uh, On the other hand, the American people are in a mode right now where violence is increasingly tolerated. We see it on our streets. We see it in our politics. We see it in our rhetoric. Abortion has taken a toll on the American mind, and I think Americans may be disbelieving that we can be life-affirming and uh, hold things together. So I I hope our messaging will stay positive. And patient. And
1: Chuck, to that point, uh, in in about a minute, it's been 50 years since Roe. Where do you think America is going to be on the issue of Roe in 50 years, of abortion in
3: 50 years? Well, Joseph, I'd like to be optimistic. I think obviously the decisions we make now will have tremendous impact. Uh, We have population decline all over the world. We have China even and Japan panicking over the lack of people to uh, comfort the elderly, and, and be in families. I wish I knew. I, you know, I also have the attack on um, on genetics, for example. Uh, we're, we are facing real questions about screening human beings for quality and other things uh, that can radically change the nature of a human being. Uh, all I know is if we don't engage, we won't have a future we like.
1: That's exactly right, and we will engage. Chuck Donovan, thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thank you, Joseph.
1: Coming up, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a new study saying the dramatic increase in transgender identities among young people is not a social contagion. Should we believe it? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay here on Washington Watch.
7: Are you a university student?
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backland, sitting in Tony today. This week, the American Academy of Pediatrics published a new study on transgenderism that purportedly finds that social contagion has not led to an increasing number of adolescents coming out as transgender. Simply put, they're claiming that transgenderism is not spreading among young people due to the influence of those around them and the culture. Now, this contradicts a 2018 Brown University study that's often cited in policies that discourage gender surgeries on children. The most recent study's authors admit that they they and the team were looking for the results they found, leading to many questions about whether the data can be trusted. And joining me now to discuss it is Dr. Jennifer Bowens, director of the Center for Family Studies at FRC. Dr. Bowens, good to see you to be with
6: you again Joseph.
1: Now I know that uh, this paper was just released a couple days ago and academics like to have a lot of time to dig through the data and have strong Mm -hmm. opinions but what's your initial reaction to the findings what you've been able to see in this study so far?
6: Okay well I think one important thing to keep in mind here is that um, the American Academy for Pediatrics is uh, has already come under fire in the last, not even within the last couple of weeks. Um, they're under fire for suppressing uh, their membership's comments. And um, so this is the same organization that's putting forth this research article. Um, they didn't want their members commenting on their concerns about transgender procedures. So curiously, here they are producing this, um, this paper within just weeks of, of this uh, debacle that they've gone through in their organization. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that Jack, um, Dr. Jack Turbin is a U.S., uh, sorry, <laughs> um, University of California, San Francisco professor who's highly invested in trans ideology and was uh, very much a part of that whole doctrine that says, you know, children will commit suicide if, if they don't trans, if they don't go through these medical procedures. So this is really important to keep in the backdrop. Before you even get to the data, we have to kind of consider the source of, of where this data is coming from.
1: And to that point, uh, th- this whole idea that they would run a study questioning whether it's actually a social contagion, is the fact that they think that is necessary evidence, that they recognize that this social contagion argument has has legs and that people are seeing the dramatic increase in the number of young people identifying as transgender. I've seen some studies, up to 30% of of young people between the ages of 18 and 24 are identifying some version of LGBT. Most of that is the T. Um, are they vulnerable? Are they recognizing that this is this is undermining their whole uh, attempt to say it's just biology?
6: Yeah, absolutely. This is um, a, a very much a reaction to a lot of what the states are um, doing to protect children. So they're on they're running defense right now. So when you just look at a very cursory view of this data. Um, th- the researchers, this is this is CDC data, by the way. Um, it wasn't uh, constructed in a way to look at the things that Dr. Turbin has concluded. Um, so he makes a lot of leaps. And here's the other thing, Joseph: when you make uh, a statement or your research finds something that is so contrary to what we know uh, of human nature or the way things work. The onerous is on you as the researcher to explain that and to suggest, hey, because this phenomenon looks like an anomaly, we need more research to replicate this. And all the more when we're looking at procedures that are so invasive to the bodies of of not just human beings or adults, but children. So, for example, if I were to tell you that, um, you know, caffeine intake, as you increase a caffeine intake, that um, you don't have more anxious symptoms, you'd say, Jennifer, I don't know about that. I found myself jittery. I don't know if I can buy that conclusion. Well, the same holds true in this case. We know that children are impacted by their surroundings, by their peers. And to all of a sudden say that there's no influence be it social media, be it all of the yeah. schools that are propagating this ideology, yeah. um, the onerous is on Mr. Turban to explain how is it that, these, um, yeah. that there is no sense of peer Dr. pressure Vance, or influence on, yeah, on these I, kids. Yeah, I want to
1: squeeze one more question here, if I can, because what the data has suggested is in the most Western countries, we've seen somewhere between a 1,000% and 5,000% increase in transgender identities among teenage girls. Now, let's assume we could prove that it's not a social contagion. Theoretically, what are the other explanations for this?
6: yeah and here's the other thing that you see just again with a very cursory view of this data um, human behavior is complicated and it's very rarely just one variable or one factor that's creating some kind of uh, behavioral response Mm. there's usually other things like in this case we know that uh, kids have more trauma um, more um, uh, childhood traumatic events that they've encountered and those who identify as trans have those backgrounds. Um, Sometimes um, children who uh, have a diagnosis of autism also uh, tend to identify as trans. So there are all these other factors that are not being played out in this study that would fully explain, or better explain rather, what's
1: going on with the child. Um, Dr. Ballins. And we are going to have to come back to better explain this because we are out of time for now. But thank you for the introduction to this, and we will have you back on to talk about this more, I know. Thank you for your time. Coming up, what does monkeypox and the government's response to it have to do with worldview? More than you think. We'll talk about it when we come back here on Washington Watch.
2: What is biblical masculinity?
7: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
0: Welcome
1: back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Before we go any further into our next conversation, I want to let parents know that we are going to talk about monkeypox. And that deals with some sensitive subjects, If you have very young children within the sound of my voice, this might be a good time to change the channel or turn down the volume. Now, the Biden administration yesterday declared monkeypox a public health emergency amid growing criticism of the administration's slow response to the outbreak. This declaration follows the World Health Organization announcement last month that monkeypox is a public health emergency of international concern. So, the Biden administration is gearing up to tackle monkeypox as a medical crisis. But is there also a moral crisis behind the medical crisis? Maybe. But maybe you shouldn't talk about it. Why not? Here to help us understand that question is David Claussen, the director of FRC Center for Biblical Worldview, and he joins me in studio today. David?
9: Great to see you. Happy Friday. Great to be with you in person, Joseph.
1: Well, likewise. Yes, it, it is great to be in person to to talk that, talk about this. And this is a uh, it's a subject that I I think I'm a little surprised that we're talking about. Lay some foundation for our conversation. I know you're not a doctor, you're not a scientist, but how serious is this issue? How yeah.
9: Yeah, it's it's serious. Monkeypox is it's something that's come on the scene, and I think it's appropriate to have a conversation about it in a our worldview segment, uh, because so often Joseph, you know, just behind the headlines uh, on political issues or scientific issues or medical issues is worldview. And like you said in your intro, this is not just a medical issue. This really is a moral issue. Uh, So, just briefly, where did monkeypox come from? You know, monkeypox has been around for a while. uh, West and Central Africa. It's normally uh, in rodents. They find it in rodents. Uh, It really kind of merged on the scene in human subjects in 2017. A young boy had these lesions on his. Is this the
1: whole COVID came from bats thing?
9: Well, I think. Yeah, I think it's different, but it, yeah. it's, it starts mostly in rodents. Okay. started maybe in a monkey, which is where the term monkeypox comes from. When the doctors over there started studying this a little bit, they realized that these symptoms, which it's a very painful, uh, lesions on the skin, usually in the genital region, uh, they started realizing around the country there in Nigeria that a lot of young men, otherwise healthy young men in their 20s and 30s, uh, were contracting monkeypox. They were, they were showing signs of this disease. They started doing a little bit of research into the uh, sexual history of these men, and they quickly realized that almost all of these men uh, were, have many sexual partners, were uh, engaged in same-sexual behavior and activity. So that was 2017. Yeah. Um, that brings us to the current uh, time where this has really kind of exploded on the scene in Europe and now in America in the last couple of months. And uh, like you said, the Biden administration has declared a national health emergency. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the World Health Organization did likewise. I I
1: also believe the CDC confirmed
9: that the U.S. is now leading the world in monkeypox cases. Do I understand that correctly? I think that's right. Yeah, here in the United States with concentrations in San Francisco, Chicago, New York City. But I think, so this is a medical issue. This is serious, but it's also a moral issue. And one of the, you know, you look at the data and it's actually um, the New England Journal of Medicine shown a study that came out that ninety five percent about ninety five percent of these cases of monkeypox are occurring in what they're calling men who have sex with men uh, so okay. uh, homosexual men uh... the cdc uh, released a report this morning uh... confirming that uh, from the cases here in the united states ninety eight percent of those cases are in uh, men having sex with other men and so by virtue of that that makes this a very <clears throat>
1: sensitive topic yep. Uh for political mm-hmm. reasons in addition to, <clears throat> to health care reasons now yep. I'm going to talk about, because it's sensitive, how we're responding to it, how we should respond to it, how we are responding to it. What are the government's current recommendations for how to control monkeypox?
9: It's really interesting, Joseph, because that's been changing a little bit for the first several weeks where this was really coming on the scene. A lot of health uh, officials, uh, state, local, federal, they really weren't wanting to talk a whole lot about this. In fact, one of the main things, uh, this was exploding in the headlines, but the big deal was, Uh, They they mentioned that monkeypox cases are rising, but they were really concerned about moral stigma uh, that was associated with this. So if you look at uh, headlines from USA Today, Washington Post, uh, CDC, Uh, even CDC put out guidelines on uh, reducing stigma. Have it and this, right here. Yeah, and
1: tell us. Wh- I mean, what are they telling
9: <clears throat> us to do in order to
1: stop this from happening? Yeah,
9: it's interesting. So the and again, they've they've been adjusting this a little bit. But based on this guidance, they just put out uh, within the last week or so, um, what they're saying about how to prevent monkeypox. Their number one recommendation is to go get a vaccine. We've heard that, uh, okay. that advice. We've heard before. that before. Does this um,
1: one work? I mean, maybe.
9: And I, I think That's there, not always there's positive signs that yeah. it might be working. But okay. the first thing they do in, in a, a uh, this disease that is exploding in the gay community, is they're saying, go get a vaccine. And then later on in yeah. their advice is they say, consider minimizing risky sexual behaviors. Okay. They have other advice, Joseph, that's interesting. Uh, they say that, uh, some of these advi- that some of the advice is that you should make it a habit to exchange contact information uh, with sexual partners. Uh, they said maybe you need to start wearing latex. Uh, they said that you need to consider maybe having yeah. virtual sex uh, rather than, I guess, real sex. So the- Okay.
1: Well, that would stop the, 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 the spread of a disease, to be sure. But you mentioned the, the, the study from the New England Journal of Medicine, 95% of cases that they found <clears throat> involved gay men who had been part of, uh, essentially, orgies. Yes. I think it's what we're talking about. Not in all cases. But they broke down, and, and we're going to get into some of this detail just because I think it's important, the number of sexual partners that the people who have monkeypox have had.
9: Yeah, no, that's right. Share some of that data with us. Yeah, so this just came out this morning. So the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, they, they surveyed 291 men who've recently in the last couple of weeks, um, last month, who had monkeypox. And what they showed was that 40% of those who have had monkeypox uh, said that they had two to four sexual partners. That's really interesting. Uh, what also popped out to me is that about 19%, so almost 20%, one in five uh, men who have had monkeypox reported to have 10 or more sexual partners, and a majority, a full third of these men uh, uh, reported being a part of orgies, uh, sex parties, or going to festivals yeah. in places like San Francisco, where it was assumed uh, that you're just going to have a, a, engaging in high, uh, a high level of risky sexual behavior.
1: Which is incredible, but there's layers to this because, David, you know you've disqualified yourself from employment in like 95% of America's (laughs) companies by virtue of just saying this publicly. Right. You know, whether it's true or not is is, (laughs) is irrelevant. And I want to illustrate that, and we're we're going to play here a clip because this same conversation took place at Fox News. And let's play clip three, let them watch that, and then we will uh, react to this.
0: As for monkeypox, I, I think there's a pretty good rule in life. Uh, don't attend gay orgies. Uh, when you look at the New England Journal's report of the five cases they reviewed,
3: Ned, come on, man. It's not right? about gay. How no, about absolutely. not any orgies? Go look, at,
0: go look at the New England Journal's report that NBC News reported on on Friday, in which of the 528 cases they reviewed, 95 percent. We're between—sex between men.
6: I don't know, man. You don't have to be gay to get monkeypox, and uh, you don't have to be bigoted when you talk about treating something that is that easily
1: spread, It's not bigoted. Yeah, it is. This this is science, Kennedy. So, David (laughs) Clausen, is it bigoted to point out the fact that 95 percent of the people contracting monkeypox are gay men, and a full third of them have reported going to orgies? Not at all.
9: No, no, it's not. And it shows, you know, I think most people would think about Fox News as a conservative outlet that's, you know, not NBC or MSNBC or CNN or something yeah. like that, but it just shows uh that the media is tripping over themselves to try to not stigmatize the behavior mm. that is at the core of what's happening with this monkeypox and, and right. it's it's one thing honestly Joseph for Fox News or a news outlet but it's another thing when actual health officials uh the health leaders in uh New York and in San Francisco even federal government uh folks in the CDC who when they're talking about this one of the first things they want to do is, is mention uh, that we shouldn't be stigmatizing certain types of behavior, when it, it, what, what is that? Just, that's moral evasion. And what they're trying to do in this moral evasion is to avoid the unfortunate uh, reality yeah. uh, that there are certain types of behaviors that are uh, making this disease code rampant in right. certain communities. That's not bigoted to point out basic facts of science and epidemiology. Right.
1: And it is difficult to follow the science, as we were repeatedly told to do, when you, we consistently see the science so faithfully following the politics. And this is, I think, just another example of that is, we're not going to say that, it's bigoted to say that, the fact that it's true actually should matter. And the advice that we're getting because of this, the sensitivity because yep. it's a highly politicized issue. Now, the why there's there's been a bunch of responses to this, and you mentioned how Official CDC guidance is is they're saying, yeah, maybe stay away from sex parties. But really, the best thing you can do is go get a virus. The Washington Post ran an article yesterday, two days ago. They said health experts are saying abstinence won't work. So we're not going Mm -hmm. to recommend abstinence. Now, you know, we don't have to go very back. We don't have to go far back into history to remember what they were telling us to do to prevent COVID, right? (laughs) They were telling us, we have to close your churches. We have to close your schools. You cannot visit loved ones in the hospital while they are dying. You may not have weddings. You may not have funerals. Christmas is canceled. Children are going to go outside and play, and they're going to have masks on. They were willing to tell us all of those things for the sake of protecting us and our health, right? But they won't say, stop going to orgies. Why is that?
9: Yeah, the double standard, I think, and let's let's be clear, you know, COVID is, uh, the numbers are massive COVID. I think we just hit 7,000 cases of monkey pox in the U.S., although it's growing exponentially. Uh, but I think what you just said uh, as far as the science following the politics, I think you're right. Uh, I think a lot of people, um, politicians, but even those who are in public yeah. health, who you would think would really care about the health yeah. of communities, uh, they are so nervous yeah. uh, about offending the LGBTQ yeah. community. They don't want to be seen as out of step. They don't want to be seen as bigoted. Uh, that they are, even in the, within their when they're having conversations mm-hmm. about what's best for the community, they're very uh, uh, reserved when it comes to actually talking about the behaviors uh, that are at the core of the spread of monkeypox. Yeah.
1: How yeah. did we get to this place where we're yeah. willing to cancel Christmas, Close schools, close your business, but we're really reluctant to say, "Hey, maybe you shouldn't have sex with people you don't know." Yeah, as just, I mean, there's a public health element right now, but in the rest of life, and I want to get into some of this, the the consequences of that. But how do we get to this place that that's the one thing that is so <laughs> sacred that even in the midst of a declared public health emergency, we are really hesitant to tell people, "Don't do that."
9: and i think one of the reasons is that you and i talk about the lgbt revolution the moral revolution in the last and, and the sexual revolution broadly and, and, to- and th- there's been a movement towards this joseph but i think increasingly whether you're you're you identify as gay or straight in america today we now view our sexual behaviors our sexual desires uh our sexual urges As really at the core of who we are. In in previous generations, this is not how we thought. Uh, Sex was something that was uh, reserved for marriage and it had uh, certain uh, purposes and whatnot really, especially now you see this with the LGBT, that the gay identity, uh, your sexual desires, sexual um, urges, sexual behaviors, has become so core of who you are. It's central to your being, uh, to your self-identification, that for someone to tell you you shouldn't do this, to try to regulate your behavior, it's really an assault on you at the core of who you are. And people don't like being told what they can and cannot do.
1: And I also think there's a Freudian element to this as well, because he's the one who introduced to the world that the the path to human happiness and flourishing Mm -hmm. is through sexual satisfaction. And we've embraced that ethic so deeply that we now feel ashamed, ironically, Mm -hmm. of the idea that we would tell people, don't do certain things that are harmful. Now, we've talked about the monkeypox component of this, but... We're identifying, from a worldview perspective, the idol that we have made out of sex, where it's the one thing, doesn't matter how bad things are, we can't stop people from doing that. I've talked before about this, but I think it bears repeating. If we just adopted a biblical sexual ethic, and no one had sex with somebody they weren't married to, right? We we can establish that monkeypox would not be an issue. No. But what other societal problems do you think that we could resolve by simply making that simple um, submission to God's plan for people?
9: Uh, uh, so many. I think our culture would just look so different if we did that. And let's just be clear, we were talking about this identity that, you know, our, our sexual behaviors and the way we identify sexuals become a core of who we are. This isn't just LGBT folks. Right. Uh, this is the vast majority of people who would be straight, that they would, you don't tell me what I can Correct. and cannot do with my sexuality. Uh, but just imagine—you know—I uh, think STDs for the you know the sixth or seventh year in a row are at an all-time high. If, if we just didn't, you know, have sex with people who are not married to STDs, yeah. gone. Things like monkeypox, yeah. gone. Uh, the wholeness that comes in a home—we know that uh, children uh, do well. All the social science yeah. tells us: mm-hmm. uh, kids are less likely to go to prison, yeah. less likely to engage in risky behavior, less yeah. likely to do drugs if they stay. No more school shootings. If they stay in a home. Uh, where the mom and dad stay committed to one. another. Right. This is why marriage, and the whole debate about respect for marriage, that's why this is so important. But yeah, if we just if we followed God's word, if we followed the moral right. commands he lays down for us in Scripture, the guardrails yeah. that Scripture gives us, we, we would be living in a world that would be a lot yeah. different morally than what we see now, Joseph. And,
1: and one more that, that I'll point out is, I genuinely believe you, you could essentially eliminate poverty in the Western world in the United States. If nobody had sex with somebody they weren't married to for 20 years, in 20 years, you would not have any more mm. poor people because you wouldn't have any more fatherless fatherlessness. Crime would basically disappear. Are they willing to do that in order to eliminate poverty? No, because it's more important that we live our truth, our identity, yeah. that we that we achieve that path to happiness. And Of course, the big lie in it is that that is not the path to happiness. That's what they just want us to believe is the path to happiness, and while we chase that path. Um, We get monkeypox, but we get a bunch of things that are probably even much worse than monkeypox as well. But David, we're out of time. Thank you so much again for being with us. Who'd have thunk that there's so much (laughs) worldview implications to what we're dealing with? Monkeypox, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Joseph. And friends, we thank you for being with us today. We hope this has been helpful to you. You can find this and every program again at TonyPerkins.com. We look forward to seeing you on Monday here on Washington Watch. Until then.